Now, have you seen photos of the skies above the northeast coast of the US at the moment? You might have experienced a bit of a flashback to the terrible bushfires of the summers of 20, summer of 2019 here, when much of our southern east coast was blanketed in smoke for months. Remember that terrible smell and the sense of foreboding in those orange skies? The air quality in New York at the moment is among the worst, if not the worst, of any major city in the world right now, and it's being caused by massive out-of-control bushfires over the border in Canada. These fires in Canada are different to what North America's used to. So far, and summer's only just started there, the area burned is already more than burned in the whole of 2022. How are North Americans coming to grips with this new reality that wildfires and their effects are likely to become more frequent as the climate continues to warm? One person who's trying to prepare people for this new normal is John Valiant, an American-Canadian author of A Fire Weather, A True Story from a Hotter World. It's just been published and, in fact, he's currently on his book tour. So thank you, John, for taking time out to speak to us. Oh, hi, Geraldine. It's great to be with you across this vast distance. Indeed. What, what I mean, what is the mood like in the places you've been visiting uh, on, on your tour? Well, I, I'm on the West Coast, and so we were introduced to those really ominous and upsetting skies that you described so clearly just a moment ago. Uh, you know, in Oregon and Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver, British Columbia... We all had that a couple of years ago, and for many of us, it was the first time. And so we really know what New Yorkers and Bostonians are going through now. And of course, you know, too. And I think there's a bit of a feeling out here. Well, so, you know, now finally you understand, you know, and you're all shocked and upset and worried about your lungs. Well, we've been living with that reality for years. And anyone who's been paying attention knows that Australians have been living with it for even longer and it's really, you know, consciousness raising, uh, in, uh, to put it mildly. I think, in fact, in the West Coast, there are several pretty big insurers who now will not insure for fire, which is a quite an it, extraordinary development, <clears throat> I think. It's, it's, it is almost epochal um, in the sense of one of the themes that I lean on in, in, in fire weather is this notion of 21st century fire. And you're terrible tornado in Canberra in 2003 was one of the har harbingers of this new, more intense, faster burning, uh, explosive reality of fire on Earth. And this um, is a direct result of that. Uh, these two insurance companies, State Farm and um, uh, maybe it's called Nationwide, um, they're huge, old established insurers. And so for them to say to the state of California, which has more people in it than all of Canada, twice as many people as Australia, to say to this massive economy, uh, no, we will not insure your new homes for fire is just going to send ripples through every aspect of society. You know, who's going to move there? Where will they live? What will they build out of? It's, and it's, it's the kind of wake up, though, that we desperately need. Well, um, Western regions of Canada and the US are used to wildfires, aren't they? But right now, the, these massive blazes are in the east, Quebec, Ontario, even Nova Scotia, which we think of as very green and cloudy and cool. So uh, has there been a change in normal conditions that's led to this? 
Oh, absolutely. If you talk to any um, forest hydrologist or even wildfire fighter from North America, they will have described to you changes that they have observed, you know, from Los Angeles up to the Northwest Territories and in Arctic Canada over the past 20 years. And what there is, is a steady warming and drying. And it's really, I mean, the thing about climate science is it's really not rocket science. It, when things are hotter, they evaporate more readily. And any bed sheet on a clothesline, you know, you, you can watch it yourself, what it does on a cloudy day, what it does on a hot, sunny, windy day. The surface of the forest and the trees will do the same thing in hot, dry, windy conditions. And now we've got temperatures in the boreal forest, that huge forest system that runs around the northern hemisphere through Russia and all the way across Canada. Um, normal temperatures might be five or eight Celsius, and now they're 30 Celsius. And so when you boost the temperature like that, you're really going to get a, a, a demonstrable change in fire behavior. Yes, I think there was a scorching uh, late May heat wave, wasn't it? Pushing temperatures in Halifax to 33 degrees Celsius, which is around 10, to, 10 degrees Celsius above normal for this time of the year. It's, it's really shocking to people. And, you know, I, I, one of the, I, I spend a lot of time with, with Australian fires in, in the book. And, you know, when you hit uh, 117 Fahrenheit in 2009 on Black Saturday, and, you know, look what those fires did that day. They, they behaved in this kind of otherworldly way. And uh, this huge fire in Fort McMurray, Alberta, the center of oil production for the country of Canada that tore through the city literally for, for many days in 2016, the temperatures between the houses were really comparable to the planet Venus. And that's not something anybody here is used to. How are people in these areas that are less familiar with wildfires reacting? I mean, we do know it's a very sobering experience um, when places that you don't think will ever burn suddenly start going up in flames. I assume there are a range of reactions. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a very strong and deep psychological component because it's a kind of existential betrayal. You know, we have certain expectations of what the world will be when we get up in the morning and walk out into it, especially if it's a place we've lived for a long time. And so to find it 10 degrees hotter than normal uh, on a hot day or the, the, color, the color of, you know, burnt sienna or, or dark orange when, when the sky should be blue, it's, it's extremely disorienting and disconcerting. And it, it makes everything feel more precarious on top of the physical, the real physical discomfort of breathing the smoke. But I think the psychological effect of looking into this world and it feels like you're on Mars or something. This isn't the planet I know. This isn't the neighborhood I know. It's not the nature I know. And it's, I think it's really upsetting. It certainly was to me. It, well, and I don't think I'm that different. It's certainly the attitude, I think the reaction, uh, the impact on animals in this in this country, um, the three million or so yeah. animals were lost, I think that was a profound, Billion, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, you know, impact on people that yeah. hasn't gone away. Yeah. Look, I, this is an, another question. What we have learned in this very old country, continent of ours, is that different, fundamentally different attitudes to fire do exist. Um, and it, it's made it not not quite a straightforward debate about how to manage fire. I mean, you know, there's indigenous attitudes, there's very different attitudes within the sort of scientific community about the management of fire. Has that happened in the US and, and, and North America? Yes, yes, it has. And so, 
you know, after World War II and the advent of smoke jumpers and, you know, people skilled with parachutes who could drop in on remote fires and put them out practically before they started, there's been, you know, fire suppression has been really developed to a fine art. And so for about 60 or 80 years, we had spectacular fire suppression. And so none of the normal kind of house cleaning fires that would take place in a, a forest weren't allowed to happen. And, you know, one of the things that people realized or, or discovered is that they di didn't like smoke very much. And so you'd have people moving into the suburbs or even in the city who didn't want to see, you know, grandpa burning his leaves anymore in the backyard and didn't want to have the fields being burned off in the spring or the fall. And so and it, really, we live in one of the most smokeless times in history. There used to be a lot more smoke in the air just from seasonal burning, all, going all the way back to when indigenous burning was just a feature of, of a seasonal landscape. And so that's really changed and things have really gone out of balance. And even as we try to get back into balance with prescribed burns and more thoughtful ways of forest thinning, you now have these fires that might have burned in a normal way in 1985 and are, are now burning explosively. So sequoia trees are now burning. And these are 2,000-year-old trees that have evolved to withstand freak 1,000-year fire events. And now they are succumbing to 21st century fire. So we've really, we've created a new world with the, you know, superabundance of CO2 that our fossil fuel-powered society has uh, generated. Uh, now, look, a final question, really. I mean, um, in terms of the definite link to climate change or other mitigating factors, I mean, in terms of an objective overview, how, how would you describe the debate there at the moment, which I presume it's, it's fostering? Oh, it's, uh, you know, it's really quite primitive, honestly. Uh, you know, we have government leaders in Canada who will not discuss um, climate change and who start point finger. These are leaders of entire provinces that are the size of Texas, huge places, millions of people. And their leaders are saying, oh, it's arsonists. And, you know, you know, in Australia, arsonists are a real thing. They've been known to start bushfires, but it is not why the forests are burning in remote areas uh, hotter and bigger than they ever have. And any sensible person knows that. And yet you have these leaders political leaders saying this. And then you have scientists who literally since the 1950s have been saying, we understand the science of CO2. We understand the impact of industrial uh, emissions. And this is what is going to happen. And in fire weather, I, I kind of connect the dots all the way back to there was congressional testimony in the United States on Capitol Hill with climate scientists speaking to government officials in 1956 discussing these scenarios. Mm. So we knew. John Vallant, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Oh, Geraldine, it's my pleasure. John Vallant, uh, V-A-I-L-L-A-N-T, is the author of Fire Weather, A True Story from a Hotter World, and it is a Scepter publication. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.